Listen as I read Hebrews chapter 4. These are verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, you are the God of grace and mercy, the one who offers us real forgiveness, the hope of eternal life. And so, Lord, I pray that those who listen to your word today would would experience the, the power of your word, that you would, you would expose the sin in us and point us to the Savior. Lord, for those that don't have faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be a day in which they put their trust in Jesus as their Savior. Lord, for those of us that follow Jesus, that call ourselves Christians, use your word that, that we might have real confidence today, knowing that you are the God who is with us, that our Savior has met our deepest needs, Father in heaven, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen. We've heard the theme of this exhortation to the Hebrews repeatedly. Jesus is better. Better than anything we could imagine. If you compared him to the angels, he's more magnificent. If you compare him to Moses' mediation, Jesus is superior. He is better than the Old Testament warnings. He is the true word of God. He offers a better rest than that of the Old Testament promised land. But the book of Hebrews has so highly valued Jesus that it might cause listeners to think, well, if Jesus is so highly exalted, how can he be any help to me? I'm down here in the mess of my life. I'm surrounded by temptation. I'm trapped in the midst of suffering. What good can Jesus be to me? For if he's so far distant, then maybe he's not really here to help. When I would leave middle school on the bus to ride home, I I always looked to check one garage on my way home because there was a house just around the corner from my middle school that had a Lamborghini in the garage. I mean, and, and as a middle schooler, at, at, the, you know, at, at the end of the, I mean, at the peak of sort of 1980s extravagance, and the, 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 there, was, there was right around the corner from my school a Lamborghini, which tells you something about where I grew up, doesn't it? Now, to be fair, I think this, this supercar was probably overpowered for where I lived. I mean, the, I think the highest speed in my hometown was 45 miles an hour, which even your, your Honda can do without any trouble. And, and, and to, be, to be fair, I, I think the car was more valuable than the house in whose garage it was parked. This is a, 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 a little ranch house with a Lamborghini in the garage. But I thought, if somebody in my neighborhood has a Lamborghini, well, then I could probably one day have a Lamborghini because it was close enough to experience. Now, I probably only ever saw it twice a year. I, I never once saw it actually out on the road. I only ever saw it, saw it rolled into the driveway being, being tenderly waxed by its owner. 
But I knew that because it was close. Maybe it could be mine. Now, you might be thinking, Kevin, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why would your greatest aspiration be to own a Lamborghini? Okay, now, to be fair, I've grown up a little bit. Well, so the car is slightly different, but that is still a great aspiration is to have, have a, a, a really fast car. But just knowing that it was there meant, well, I could, I could maybe one day have it. But, but Jesus is so great, so highly exalted, maybe he's not even here anymore. I don't even have the, the hope of driving past just knowing that that car is in the garage. No, he's, he's gone. Our passage tells us that Jesus has, verse 14, gone through the heavens. He is so highly exalted that he is, he's passed through heaven on his way to somewhere greater. Wait, if heaven is so great, Jesus looks down on heaven. That's how great he is. But if he is that great, then can he be here for me? And yet verse 14 tells us, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So we see first that Jesus is exalted. He's been exalted through, he's gone through the heavens. And in our New Testament, heaven can either be singular as the place where God is or the heavens, plural, the place where God is. Because in the Hebrew, it's plural. So when you translate it into Greek, you can translate it as singular, it's heaven, or it's the heavens. But, but the point here is that Jesus is above the heavens. He's gone through the heavens. He is so highly exalted that, that we're putting an emphasis on Jesus's transcendence, his distance from us. And I don't mean a, a physical distance from us that you would measure in light years of, of, how, of how, uh, how much higher Jesus is than we are. I mean in, in spiritual terms, that Jesus is so highly exalted that he is one who is above the heavens an emphasis on his exaltation and how much greater he is than we are, how, how much more his worth is compared to mine. Jesus transcends all limits of time and space. You, you can't even, it, it, to just say he's gone to heaven, well, that's too small a statement to make. He has gone through the heavens. He's exalted above everything that has been made. But he has also described for us in his exaltation here, verse 14, as a great high priest. The, the Old Testament language of a priest, the one who mediates between God and men, who, who brings sacrifice to make uh, humans right with God, to, to deal with our problem of sin that we could be in the presence of God. Verse 16 will say that we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. But, but in the Old Testament, you, you couldn't just come into the, the holy throne room of God whenever you wanted. You couldn't approach God with, with, with this kind of confidence that you could just get near him. You, 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 your high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, but only once a year, only on the Day of Atonement. And, and if we, we turn to Leviticus 16, to the Old Testament, we would find the description of this Day of Atonement, a day on which the high priest was commanded to bring a, a bull to sacrifice, to slaughter, so that the blood of the bull would be a picture of the forgiveness of sins that the priest himself needed. And then the priest was to bring two goats. He would, he would lay his hands and, and prayerfully place the sins of the people upon the scapegoat. That's where the term comes from here in the book of Leviticus. That scapegoat would then be sent into the wilderness, a picture that God was taking the sins of the people away from them. But even, even now the the, the high priest can't enter the Holy of Holies. He has to take the other goat and slaughter it and, and sprinkle the blood as he enters. 
Because he could only get to the throne of God through these elaborate rituals, through the shedding of blood of these sacrifices. And he could only do it on this one day each year after he had atoned for his sins. He'd shown that, that God was taking away the sins of his people. He'd, he'd taken the other goat to, to atone for the sins of the, of the people. But Jesus is described to us not merely as a high priest, who of course is, is above all of the other priests. He is the great high priest. And, and he doesn't just once a year go into the Holy of Holies, the, the, the copy of heaven's throne room. He has actually gone into the heavenly throne room itself. He's so great that, that actually he's gone through the heavens. He's exalted above the heavens. And Jesus' exaltation is described in the in the simple terms that are given to us there at the end of verse 14. Who is this great high priest who has gone through the heavens? Jesus, the Son of God. He is Jesus, who is, of course, the son of Mary and Joseph. Jesus, a name we've already heard in this book. We saw it back in chapter 4, verse 8. But there it was translated for us the way that we hear it in the Old Testament. Joshua. The, the name, which means the Lord saves. A reminder that, that after God had rescued the people through Moses, that God was giving them another leader, Joshua, whose very name was a reminder that Yahweh rescues his people, the Lord saves. And so we're comfortable calling Jesus the son of Mary by his given name, Jesus, but it would have been unusual. There's, there's no Jesus in the family tree. We don't even have an uncle Jesus to, to name him after. His, his name should be, well, Joseph or or something like that. We should pick a name that, that fits the, the family tree. But an angel arrives and, and tells Joseph, no, you are to give this child the name Jesus because he will save God's people from their sins. Jesus is the son of Mary who can then be the substitute who dies in our place. The one who, who is truly man to bear our sins. But he is also the Son of God, the one with all power and authority to bear the weight of not just one man's sin, but all of our sins. Jesus, who can die for us, who is pure and powerful enough to handle our sin. See, Jesus' transcendence, his greatness, his exaltation might make us, might make us think that, that he's too far away to help us. But, but what Hebrews is doing is saying, because he has been exalted, he can now help us in our time of need. Right now, he is the Savior who can deal with our sins. And we see this connection between the exaltation of Jesus and meeting us in our time of need if we were to turn to the book of Acts. In, in Acts chapter 6 and 7, we are introduced to Stephen. The, the apostles have been preaching the gospel. This is after the ascension of Jesus into heaven in the book of Acts. The, the apostles have been preaching the good news that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. God has raised him from the dead. But, but there's work that needs to be done in the church. And so deacons are appointed, and one of the deacons we're introduced to is Stephen. Stephen, when we meet him in chapter 6, is a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit when, when his name is first given to us. And it's repeated for us when we, when we begin to see how God worked in Stephen's life. In Acts 6, verse 8, we're told that Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power, and he did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. He, he's doing these miraculous signs, but it, but it brings forth opposition. 
the Jewish religious leaders are upset that he's preaching in the name of Jesus, that he's telling people they need to put their trust in Jesus. So they accuse him of blasphemy against Moses. They accuse him of blasphemy against God. And when, when he's brought before the religious leaders, he doesn't sort of step back and say, all right, everybody, just take a deep breath. Let me take a little bit of time to explain to you. I'm not trying to upset things here. No, what does he do? He says, I have the religious leaders of the people of God right here in front of me, and I have a message of salvation that they need to hear. And so he launches into a sermon. He, he begins his sermon in, in Acts chapter 7. He says, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still living in Mesopotamia. He, he recounts how from the Old Testament, God chose Abraham and rescued him, brought him into the land that would become the land of promise. He, he continues the story and, and tells how through Moses, God rescued his people from slavery. And he, but, but, but in the wilderness, and we've seen this in the book of Hebrews, his, the book of Hebrews almost matches uh, uh, Stephen's sermon. In, in the wilderness, the people of God, having been rescued by God, will they turn away from God? They worship a golden calf. They're described in the book of Exodus as a stiff-necked people, people who are rebelling against God. And, and Stephen, having put forth the message of salvation through Jesus, he then turns the challenge on his listeners. He calls them a stiff-necked people. He's saying, you're just like those in the Old Testament who rejected the message of salvation that came through Jesus. He says, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. He brings a word of judgment against them. We're told in Acts 7, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Here we have the direct connection between the exaltation of Jesus in heaven and Jesus powerfully meeting the needs of one of his followers here on earth. Stephen looks up, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. They're going to beat him to death with these stones, but while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Just like the book of Hebrews tells us that the exalted Christ will meet us in our time of need, we see it pictured in the life and ministry of Stephen. Stephen, at the point of his death, because he's proclaiming the gospel message, he receives this, this glimpse into heaven to see what God is doing, the grace and glory of God in heaven. Jesus meeting his needs, and so he prays out to him, Lord Jesus, receive my, my spirit. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That's why Hebrews can tell us, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, 
let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. The exaltation of Jesus does not make him theologically distant from us. It makes him powerfully present with us. We can hold firmly to the the truth that has been announced to us. We can hold by faith to the promise that's been given to us because Jesus has been exalted. But more than that, not only is he exalted, he has been tempted. That's where the argument continues because it's telling us, remember, he has not always been the one exalted in heaven. He humbled himself. We, we announce that to one another when we, when we confess our faith using Philippians 2, that Jesus, the one who, who humbled himself to the point of death, has now been exalted. His exaltation is a result of his humiliation, his willingness to die for us. And so verse 15 back in Hebrews 4 tells us that we can hold firmly to this faith. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Now, my English teacher probably would have said, Kevin, you could, you could say that more clearly if you don't have the double negative in there, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. You could say that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us, but it's the, the reason that it's given to us in that, that double negative is because, well, one, that's much easier to read in the Greek than it sounds in English. But two, it's, it's actually answering the question for us, is Jesus able to sympathize? I mean, he must be, if he's in heaven, unable to sympathize with us anymore. He is so highly exalted that he's so distant from our problems. No, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Jesus is the one who has endured temptation. Think of the earthly ministry of Jesus. He, he arrives in, through the miraculous birth that we celebrate at Christmas. He's baptized by John the Baptist, the, the last of the Old Testament prophets announcing the coming of the king, the one whose sandals John would be unworthy to even untie, to deal with the filth of Jesus' feet. Jesus is so highly exalted that John's position is so far beneath him. And after his baptism, we're, we're told in the Gospel of Matthew, and this is recounted in the other Gospels as well, but, but I'm going to focus on Matthew this morning. We're told in Matthew chapter 4 that, that then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus, in the depth of his hunger, is told by, by the devil, you don't, you don't have to suffer in this way. You have the, the power to take a, a stone and turn it into bread. You, you don't need to, to wait for an Uber to get you down to a grocery store in Jerusalem. Like, just do it right now. You have the power to, to solve a real, practical, and deep need. And yet Jesus answered this temptation, it is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. But the devil is not done with Jesus. He takes him to the, 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 the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, the devil said, throw yourself down, for it is written, God will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in, in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You are, you're the promised Messiah, aren't you? Throw yourself down. Nothing can happen to you. 
There's no risk to you. The angels will catch you. And yet Jesus is unwilling to, to put God to the test, unwilling to, to use his relationship with God in a, in a frivolous or foolish way to, to meet the, the, the taunts of the devil. And so Jesus answered the devil, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Everything could be yours, Jesus. The, the kingdoms of the world. And, and think, who greater to reign over everything here? And, and to gain this kingdom without the suffering of the cross? The temptation is real. The offer is significant. And yet Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus responds to real temptation in perfect integrity. Well, we can go to later in the Gospel of, of Matthew to, to, to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his arrest and betrayal. He knows that Judas, who, who ran out from the meal, is coming with armed soldiers to take Jesus to his death. So he asks his disciples to pray with him. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he leaves them uh, behind, telling them that his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he goes a little farther. He fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. His disciples have fallen asleep. They're, they're not staying awake with him, but but, but he goes away a second time. He prays, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. Jesus willingly goes to the cross, not sidestepping what God has given him to do. And even as we turn the page in Matthew's gospel to find Jesus on the cross, the, the, the crowds who passed by, they hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Jesus, take yourself off the cross. Prove to us you're the son of God. And yet Jesus willingly endures suffering for our sake. Jesus is the one who faced temptation in every way just as we face temptation, yet Jesus was without sin. One commentator says that, that you can look at the whole life of Jesus as one of testing and proving, and yet Jesus is victorious over every single temptation. He has endured triumphantly. You and I as sinners, we yield to temptation before the last strain. We are, we, when, when, when the weight of sin is pressed upon us, we crumble. You and I would trade our integrity for one answer on a test. 
Not even the guarantee that we're going to pass the whole course. Not a promise that you'll be president of the university. Just one answer I'll trade my integrity for. And yet the kingdoms of the world are offered to Jesus, and he will not turn away from his mission. You and I, in the midst of, of slight discomfort or frustration, will turn to, to sin and, to, and to, to anger. And yet Jesus on the cross endured sin and shame for our sake. He is the one who has actually endured suffering. And so this means we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Jesus has been exalted because he was tempted and endured. And now the grace of God is made accessible to us. He's right here with us. The, the Lamborghini is in my garage. Like I, I have access, I have the keys, it's mine. Everything that I wanted is is given to me through the grace of God and through his work in our life. And that's why, why Hebrews 4.16 tells us, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Because Jesus has been exalted above the heavens, because Jesus was tempted in every way, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. So we don't have to be timid about, about our access to God. We don't have to be anxious about coming toward him. We, we don't have to tiptoe in and, and kind of wait and see what kind of mood God might be in today. Like, is today a safe day to, to kind of approach and ask a question? And we have direct and immediate access to God because of his grace and mercy. When we come to the throne of God, we can come because of what Jesus has done for us. And notice in verse 16 how this, this throne is described to us. This is the throne of grace. Normally we would think in, in biblical terms of the throne of God as the place of judgment. It's the place where the king sits in all his authority to, pass, to, to render judgment on decisions that are brought to him. And yet this is not a, a place of judgment for you and I, which is good news because everything about our lives has been laid bare before God. No, this is called the throne of grace. The place where we will find the love and affection and blessing of God. It's a place where we can come with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace. That we receive the forgiveness of our sins that God in his mercy does not hold us guilty for what we have done wrong. But more than that, God in his grace then, then lavishes upon us the blessings of Christ's kingdom. We have the promise that we belong to Jesus, that we are his. God will meet us in our time of need. And so when you face sorrow and struggle, you have a Savior who's passed through the heavens, who through his suffering and through his temptation gained access to heaven for you. He's not distant from you, but he's right here with you. Yes, he's highly exalted, but he's the Savior who meets all of your needs. When we, when we face temptation, we know that we can endure. We know that we can, we can say no to sin and to temptation because Jesus endured for us and because Jesus promises to be with us. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was perfect without sin. He can sympathize with us because he conquered our temptations. He's the only one who actually 
really fully understands how serious our temptations are. Because you and I never bore the full weight. You and I at times, we were crushed under the weight of our temptation when we yielded to sin. Jesus actually understands temptation better than you do because he endured through to the other side in integrity and perfection. And so he is with us now in our time of need. The truth that Jesus is in heaven as the king and savior, the great high priest, should give us hope now, right now, in whatever circumstances we face, because Jesus is the savior who is with us. Missionaries John and Betty Stamm served in Tsingtao, China, back in 1934. They'd actually only been in this city for two weeks, sent by the China Inland Mission to help the growing church in this part of the country. Betty is bathing their three-month-old baby, Helen, when a city magistrate rushes to warn them that the communist forces are near. He urges John and Betty to flee. They, they look for a, for a way to, to get out, but but the communists are already inside the city. The enemy beats on the Stam's gate, and John and Betty are taken into custody. John is allowed to, that night to write a message to his mission's authorities. My wife, baby, and myself are today in the hands of the communists. We were too late to escape. The Lord bless and guide you. As for us, may God be glorified whether by life or by death. John and Betty are moved from house to house under guard because of the chaos happening around them. But in the terror of their circumstances, they have confidence in their situation because Jesus is exalted in heaven. They know he is with them now. At one of the homes through which they pass, they're asked by somebody who, who they had met on a previous visit. He asked, where are they taking you? Where are you going? John, pointing to his guards, answers, we do not know where they are going, but we are going to heaven. The next morning, John and Betty are led through the town. The town's people are brought out and forced to watch the violence. The evil invader to this town orders John to kneel, and with his sword, he ends the missionary's life. His wife, Betty, does not scream, but falls to her knees by her husband's side. With the same sword, her life is ended with a single blow. Fellow Christians risk much to smuggle their surviving infant daughter to safety. Because Jesus reigns in heaven, you and I have access to the throne of grace. In our time of need, we know that Jesus is the king, exalted above the heavens. He endured temptation so that he can stand with us now. Where is Jesus? He reigns in heaven. Where are you going? With the martyr, we can answer, I am going to heaven. Let's bow in prayer.
God of grace and mercy. We come to your throne of grace. We come with confidence and expectation because of the promises you have made to us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, I pray that, that you would meet us now in our time of need. For those that, that hear this, this truth about Jesus but have not yet put their trust in him, Lord, even now in this moment, grant faith to those who listen. Give us the, the joy and confidence of knowing our Savior, of knowing that whatever we face in this life, we face not alone but with Jesus, the exalted Savior, the one who endured temptation. Father, we come because we have nowhere else to turn. It is in Jesus Christ alone that we find this mercy and grace. And so, Lord, we come claiming your promises through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.